These, I found these children's books. They're big. This is uh, what we use. To, the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It's a shorter example, but it may be the most extreme of them all. Remember earlier in the series when we put all our receipts and our junk in a box and we threw it out the door and we said, that's what James is telling us our faith is if we don't put it into action. It is worthless. He uses the same word for worthless in this passage too at one point. Faith that is not activated, a faith that is not embodied is junk. It's worthless. James says it is dead. Like a body without a spirit. Uh, You may have noticed, now is probably a good time to draw attention to it. We have a book for demons. Did Anybody thought that was a little bit weird? We have these heroes of faith, the stories of Abraham and Ruth and Esther and Jesus and demons. Well, demons, they have a story of faith too. James points this out. He says, oh, you believe that there is one God? This is a very Jewish thing. We heard the two greatest commandments. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. James says, you believe that there's one God? Oh, good, because that's true, first of all, but also because everyone believes that. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor. Basic, basic cable here, guys. James says, even the demons believe that. The demons, in terms of faith and having a story of faith that's worth telling, they don't have a lot to offer, but they at least have a book because they too believe that there is one God. They acknowledge the, the universal truth. There's one God who's in charge of things. The demons are like, yeah, yeah we're, we're not on his side, but oh man, we know that that is true. James comes our kids, Bible stories, Jesus miracles, and you go, whoa, look at this big book, and then it's got pictures and the stories that come from the Bible. This is a great way that we learn the faith and that we teach this to our children in a visual way. Wow, look at this. Jesus calming the storm. Big old boat picture. There's Old Testament, New Testament stories. You'll see some of them up here. Abraham, Esther. As we come to the passage of James that we're studying this morning, you're going to see James is going to reference some of these classic stories of faith as he talks about the relationship between faith and deeds. Faith without deeds is dead, we heard a little bit earlier. Now this passage we get to spend some time in this morning is something of a preacher's dream. Preachers love passages like this because James is using illustrations and he's using hyperbole and there's a little bit of sass involved there too. He's making mainly one point, but he makes it and illustrates it in several different ways. I read this passage and I go, oh, I love this. It almost preaches itself. I don't need to really do much to it. It's a preacher's dream. But at the same time, it's a bit of a preacher's nightmare because of some of the theological, traditional, historical entanglements that we have when we come to a text that says something like, faith without deeds is dead. We go, wait a minute. That's not what I heard. Aren't there other parts in the New Testament where it says just the opposite, where it doesn't matter what we do, we can't earn our salvation, it's not about what we do, it's not what we have to show for it, it's all about the cross, it's all about what Jesus did. Are those two things at odds? We sometimes come to this text and, hmm, is it this or is it this? Is it one or is it the other? So it's a great preacher's text, but it's also a bit of a challenge. Hopefully we'll understand it and be... Uh, empowered to go and live it by the end of my time up here. 
as we interact with it a little bit. Let me read this text. We've heard some of it a little bit earlier, but let me go ahead and read this, and then we'll, we'll talk about what we're talking about here, so to speak. James says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. One of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is what? Let's try that again. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith, I have deeds. But show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Ooh. Is he talking to us? Has, has he got your attention now? You foolish person, fiery preacher. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham, Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Hmm. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so, read this last part with me, faith without deeds is dead. Okay, pretty clear, but let's talk a little bit about this. He gives four examples pretty much. He says, faith without deeds is dead. Let me show you. He says things like, do you want evidence? Or so you see in this passage quite a bit. And the four examples he gives, most of them come from Scripture. The first one is kind of a hyperbole. It's a hypothetical situation. Let's say you come upon one of your brothers and sisters in the church and they are completely naked, and they are starving. Probably not going to happen. Doesn't happen very often, but this is the picture he paints. Let's say that they are helpless and in need, and you go, hey, have a great day. Wish you well. Keep warm, well fed. See you next time. Doesn't work. There's, not, there's no action there, then there's no faith there, James is telling us. This sounds kind of a lot like a story that Jesus told that you may be familiar with about a man who was traveling. There was a man on the Jericho Road who was robbed and beaten and bruised. Remember this? The Good Samaritan story. A man who got beat up and robbed and basically left for dead. A priest walks by. Somebody who ought to help him, who ought to see this need and do something about it. And then goes, nah, I better not. And he walks by. And then a Levite, an even more likely candidate for helping someone in need, comes by, does the same thing. Ooh, nope. Not going to do that. Not going to help him. And then a Samaritan. You know the history of Jews and Samaritans. They were enemies. Uh, Capulets and Montagues. Romulans and Klingons. I don't know. <laughs> that one's for Darren. I probably butchered it, but that's okay. 
An enemy helped him. The people that ought to help him didn't help him, but the least likely person touched him, healed him, put him on his donkey, took him to the inn. Nod your head if you've heard this story before, and you know how this goes. He pays him money to the innkeeper, says, look after my friend. And Jesus tells the story to say, who was more of a neighbor to him? And everybody goes, obviously the one who helped him. Jesus says, yep, on to something there. Go and do likewise. James's hyperbolic question about the person in need, and you go, ah, good luck with that. Kind of like the story of the Good Samaritan. I wonder if there's a picture book for that. I bet we have one. Then he gives the example of the story of Abraham. Abraham did a lot of things to demonstrate his faith, but one of the most famous and extreme and, quite frankly, unsettling details about the story is God says, go up to the mountain, make a sacrifice. Okay, I will. Lord, I want you to sacrifice your only son. Oh, okay. Takes him up there, puts him on the altar, willing to make the sacrifice. God says, no, wait, stop, don't do that. Troubling passage we've studied before, we've talked about, but James goes to this picture book, the story of faith, and says, look, you can see Abraham's faith because of what he did. He did a lot of other stuff too, but this is a very obvious example of him saying, I trust God. I'm showing you my faith. Then the third example, the story of the conquest narratives, when they're going to go into the promised land, and they sent these spies, and they're like, oh, let's check it out. God said we can have this land, and they're a little bit uh, unsure, but they send these spies to check it out, and the people there caught wind of the spies, like, oh, we're going to get these spies, and they happen to be in the home of a prostitute. Don't spend too much time wondering why they were there. But she hides them. She's willing to take these, these strangers who say we're on a mission from God. This is going to be our land. We want you to Protect us from the people who are trying to thwart our mission. And James says, Rahab, this woman of ill repute, did this amazing thing. She demonstrated her faith by her actions when she hid the spies and told the authorities to go and look for them in a different direction. We have men and women of faith up here. Uh, and these stories of faith can all be depicted. The last example he gives is much shorter. Here's the faith of the those who don't have deeds, the actionless faith, to the faith of demons. And I didn't want that to be lost on us. Their storybook doesn't have very many pictures, but here it is nonetheless. Even the demons believe that and shudder. He's being pretty clear. If you don't understand his main point at this point, well, to be honest, he's going to go on in the next chapter and give you more illustrations of saying the same thing. But James is being very clear. If you have faith, you should be able to show it. It should have a picture book. It should be detectable. You should be able to see it. Now, again, we could, you know, our faith is not supposed to be showy. Jesus tells us that. Don't pray so people can think you're a great prayer. Don't do your acts of, of service and mercy so that people can praise you. You know, just, just do them and let God receive the glory. Yes, absolutely. And James is reminding that your faith should move the needle a little bit. It should show up on the radar. Now I referenced this earlier. We come to it and we are very much influenced by Reformation theology. People who studied the scriptures 500 years ago, Luther, Calvin, others, <laughs> and they said, hey, we like this sola scriptura thing. We like this sola fide thing. Faith alone. Faith 
in Christ. They go to passages from Paul, places like Ephesians 2. By uh, grace, by faith, you've been saved. Not by works. Not so that anybody can boast in what we have done, but it's because of what Jesus did. It's not about your works. It's not about your deeds. It's just accepting the grace of God from Jesus Christ, throwing yourself on the mercy of the court, and just believing and living a life of faith that comes from there. Ephesians 2, Paul talks about this pretty specifically. Galatians 2, Paul talks about this pretty specifically. We come to a passage like this in James and we go, wait, isn't that the opposite of what Paul says? It can be troubling for us. And the answer is, not really. Wait a minute, it's pretty clear. James is wrong or Paul is wrong. This is where we get stuck. This is where we spend more of our time going, hmm, which one are we supposed to listen to? And like, do we really have to do things? And uh, let me point out just some quick flyby things, some information that will maybe help us see that Paul and James were actually on the same team. They were not opponents. One, if you read Acts 21, they were working together. I mean, the, the, the team chapters of Acts where the church is trying to figure out, what do we do with the Gentiles? We're mostly Jewish. How do we interact with Gentiles? Okay, well, let them in. Well, do they have to be Jewish? They can have been Jewish. They don't have to do the works of the law. They don't have to observe the holy holidays. Do they have to be circumcised? That's a pretty big commitment if you're not already Jewish. Half the people were like, yes, we did. They need to. And Paul and uh, Peter and James, they prayed about this. And they studied about this. And they came to a conclusion, no. I think Paul lived the whole rest of his life observing the Jewish traditions. He was Jewish. James was Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. Heavily, heavily influence on early Christianity. We're not throwing away Abraham and Esther and these stories of faith. Like Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to what? To fulfill them. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Paul and James were contemporaries. They were on the same team. They were moving and pulling in the same direction. That's one thing to keep in mind. Another one is that Paul didn't just say, faith comes from believing. It's what you think. That's not really what Paul said. He said, absolutely, Jesus did all the heavy lifting. We have nothing to offer. But in other passages, like I have these up on the screen here, fruit of the Spirit, Romans 12, 21, being living sacrifices, 1 Corinthians 3, where he says fire will test the quality of one's work, 2 Corinthians 5, where he'll later go on to talk about being a new creation in Christ. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Paul was not against good works. Paul was pro-good works. I think if he heard James deliver this message, he would have amen and said, yeah, your faith should show up on the radar. You should have something to show for, for faith. A faith without deeds is dead. Another thing to keep in mind, one of the reasons Paul was so adamantly, like, he was so forceful teaching this whole it's not about your works. It's not about what you can offer. It's not about keeping the, the, the Jewish traditions necessarily. It's because of context. What was happening in the Galatian church where there were these people saying, no, it's all about the works. And Paul goes, no, 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 no. And he pushes back. He had a message that was specific to this church that they needed to hear. And these are kind of, we can still these and we can say, yes, that appears to be true, but we are removed from this. And like I said earlier, we are definitely heavily influenced by Reformation theology, that some of these decisions and patterns set by the church a long, long time ago, that's part of why we come to this and we're a little bit confused. Like, they seem like they're saying two different things. 
Scott McKnight puts it like this. He says, if post-Reformation Christians are troubled by James's theology in light of Paul's theology, it would have been the reverse in the first century. The Christians in Galatia would have had a hard time hearing Paul say, like, it's not about what you do. They would be like, of course it's about what you do. Following the Torah, loving God with all your heart, loving your neighbor, caring for widows and orphans. The example about somebody who's in need and the Good Samaritan, like, everybody would have said, of course it's about what you do. Paul's thoughts on this were revolutionary. They weren't wrong, just coming at it from a different angle. I don't know if that helps or if that just makes us feel a little bit more confused. But I want you guys to know that Paul and James were not at odds with each other. There's a, a, a similar and a consistent message here. And you find this in Jesus, too. The passage about the sheep and the goats. Like, the king's going to welcome those who welcome those into his kingdom, and others he's going to invite to not enter eternal life. And the people entering the kingdom are going to go, why, what did we do? And he said, you fed me, you clothed me, you gave me something to drink, you visited me when I was in prison. They said, we don't remember doing that. You did this to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. You did it for me. You actually did. You didn't realize it. And the opposite is true for the people going like, hey, how come we're not entering the kingdom? How come we're not part of what's going on with these folks? Because you didn't do the things that I needed you to do, that I called you to do. You didn't put your faith into action. So it's hard to escape and try as we may to go, it's more about what you think, more about claiming Christ, which it absolutely is, but if we say it's more about that than about our actions, or if we've given up on actions, then we're missing something that Jesus taught, that Paul taught, that James taught, that it's across the board. Pretty important stuff. Okay, and then here's another problem. We're going diving deep into why this is, is troubling. When you hear James talk about this, you might ask the question, like, why is he spending so much time on this? Who is asking the question that he is answering here? Is it someone in his church? Is, was this a problem? Did he see people who said, like, oh, I have faith. Like, I, I believe in Jesus, so I'm just going to wait for the bus and, like, just wait for the return of Christ, wait for the end of my life, and just whatever. And it's like, no, 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 you got to be doing stuff. Maybe that's what was happening in the church. Maybe it was someone who heard Paul talking to the Galatians and that new revolutionary Pauline theology was hitting them and maybe James was clearing it up or attempting to do that. This is the second half of the chapter of James, or the second chapter of James. You guys remember what the first half of James 2 was about? The story of, let's say you're in your, your meeting, you're worshiping, and someone comes in and they dress fancy. Nod your head if this is coming back to you now. Fancy person comes in, let's treat them with extra respect. A raggedy person comes in, let's, let's try to get them out of the view of the camera. <laughs> let's let's uh, downplay their presence here. He says, no, no, no. That's not love your neighbor as yourself at all. That's showing favoritism. You shouldn't do that. Maybe this, talking about faith and deeds or lack of deeds, not showing your faith, not doing the right thing when you ought to be doing it, is a continuation of this conversation about something that was going on in the churches at the time. And this is all very interesting, and we're studying this and thinking about the first century context and James and Paul. But who's asking now? Which one of us is asking this question? What, is my, what do my deeds have to do with my faith? And there's different reasons we can ask this question. We can ask because we wonder whether or not we've lived a good enough life 
that if we die, we appear before the throne of God, do we still wonder whether or not he's going to say, come, good and faithful servant, come to the table that's been prepared for you. Come, enter life. Do we still wonder, like, ah, I I could have done more. I was faithful, but uh, not always. Do we stress about that? Do we, do we wonder if God's grace is enough? Listen to Paul saying, yes, it's absolutely enough. It's not about what you did. It's about claiming Christ. So maybe some of us, our motivation for asking why, because we want to justify ourselves. It's not about you. It's not about your deeds. Wait a minute, Jacob. Didn't you just get done yelling at us that it is about your deeds? Well, that's another reason why people want to ask. Maybe we're asking because we want to go, haven't I done enough? (laughs) At what point do I have to stop caring for people that are hard to care for? At what point can I focus on me and not keep laying down my life for someone who doesn't seem to appreciate it or doesn't seem to be making a difference at all? Does any of this matter? Well, listen to James saying it does matter. Like, this is the story of your life. These are the images of your faith. This is your faith demonstrated. And it all goes somewhere. It all gives glory to God. Here's what I think it's not. It's not to make you feel like you haven't done enough. And it's not to make you feel like you know what the score is. Like, Wouldn't it be weird if I said, all right, here's the standings at the Tri-Valley Church of Christ. The person that did the most to show their faith is... Matt McLean. Everybody clap for Matt. He did the best this week. And then second place, Jacob, obviously. And way down here at the bottom, we all know who it is, but it's time. The question is, wouldn't that be strange? We don't do that. We shouldn't do that, but aren't there versions of that? Comparing and keeping score. Oh, if you're a Christian, you ought to have done this. Oh, why had you? I, uh, uh. Not that. What is our motivation for wanting these? And, and it's, it's not about being showy either. Jesus said don't do that. I go back to these books, and I think it's not like Ruth was better than Demon. Well, she probably was. Ruth was better than Abraham or Noah, like whoever has the biggest book and whoever has the most pictures. It's just the fact that we have these books at all. And I don't want to be somebody who's looking at your book and going like, eh, you should have more, have more stories. You should have more stuff in your book. But I, I do want to be honest about the fact that I have my own book. This is the story of Jacob's faith. And I don't I'm not trying to show off and be like, hey, look at mine's thicker. Maybe be like, learn some things from this guy over here. But here's what I don't want to happen. I don't want the content of my, my life, of faith, and following Jesus. I don't want it to be the same on the inside as the demons. That would be pretty sad. There's nothing in here that shows faith in God. They're not following. They're not trusting. I believe? Sure. I believe? Sure. Here's all the things I believe. I can tell you, but if I, there's no actions, then something's missing, then something is off. And I think that's what James is reminding us and encouraging us 
And maybe it's just within the context of someone comes in and there's something you know you ought to do, but you don't feel like it. You're more inclined to you know, kiss up to the wealthy and like do things that are self-serving, then you're missing the gospel. Why do we do good things at all? <laughs> Paul says, eh, no one's keeping score. Yeah, do it, but it's all about Jesus. And James is saying, yeah, you should have something to show for it. Like, where do we find a middle ground? What's our motivation? I want to read you a story that Jesus, well, he didn't tell the story. He lived the story. Uh, Matthew is telling us the story. And when I say Matthew, I realize now it's Matthew and Luke. So we'll read the Luke's version of a story. But I think it demonstrates what faith in action looks like, and what the motivation behind it should be. Uh, Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. I don't think I put it up on the screen, so just listen and try to picture what's happening here. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. She stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, hmm, if this man were a prophet, then he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Interesting, he says this to himself, and yet Jesus responds to his inter-monologue. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Simon says, tell me, teacher. Jesus says, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One of them owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. This is the question he asked for Simon. Now, which one of them will love him more? And Simon said, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus said, you have judged correctly. And then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Simon's up here. The woman's down here, by the way. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, standard greeting and sign of respect in the ancient world, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. If you've been forgiven a lot, if you have a lot to be forgiven for, and Jesus says, Just forget it. The debt is canceled. Wow. And pour perfume on the feet of Jesus. Don't stop kissing his feet like, ah! Why? She's not showing off. No one's looking anyway. She's not trying to justify herself. She's already been 
forgiven. She's already been elevated. She's already been recognized. It's an outpouring of the realization how much she's been forgiven, how much love she's been shown by God. And that's, that's where Christians live. We have been forgiven by God. But I wonder sometimes if we feel more like Simon, like, yeah, we've been forgiven 50 denarii. Sure, sure, sure. But I'm, I'm on the board. I'm doing okay. Other people, oh, they need more forgiveness. I think we forget where we actually stand without Christ. We are lost. We are hopeless. We cannot earn it back. We cannot do. We can't have enough picture books to earn our forgiveness. It's given. It's offered. It's bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And like this woman on the floor who realizes my whole life has changed. I have received love even though I don't deserve it. I've never received it before. An outpouring of good deeds, I think, is the natural result. I think that's the motivation. I think that's where it comes from. And that's what James was talking about here. I want to end by inviting you to do something this morning. I want you to think about your week, what you're going to do this week, who you're going to interact with, what it looks like to do deeds intentionally that demonstrate your faith. Like, you might say, oh, I'm going to go to work. Well, you're probably going to go to work anyway. Um, I'm going to have a sandwich. You might have done that anyway, regardless of the realization of how much you are loved and saved and redeemed by Jesus Christ. I want you to think specifically about your faith, what you know about how God sees you, and what that one makes you motivated to do. What does that drive you to do in relationship to the poor, in relationship to the unlovely, your enemies, people who are hard to deal with, people that you haven't forgiven, but you ought to have? I want you to think about what it looks like this week. Show your faith by what you do. And there's lavender pieces of paper on your chair nearby. I want you to draw it. I want you to take a pen. I want you to take a pencil. There should be some in the seats, under the seats in front of you. If you don't have one, I have a box of pens up here. Just let me know, and I will supply you with one. But I'm going to play a song, and I'm going to invite you to draw what it is you're going to do. Think about it like this. Like, you have a book of your faith, and if it was going to, this week's Faith of Jacob was going to be put into picture book format, what would the pictures look like? They don't have to be great. You can do stick drawings. You can do uh, images or like icons or shortcuts or however you want to do this. But that's what I want you to take a moment, just envisioning what a, like this woman who was forgiven by Jesus, what does a grateful outpouring of love and appreciation look like for you in the kingdom of God? So, Take about, the song's about five minutes long, so just for the duration of the song, I want you to draw a picture of what your faith will look like. I was going to say could look like, but I want this to kind of be a, a commitment, like this is what I'm going to do. Oh, good, good. Think of more. You've got a long week ahead of you. Draw your faith, uh, and then at the end of the song, I'm going to invite you to show and tell with the people around you. Ready, set, 